From the always literate studios of PBS 39 at the PPNL Public Media Center in Bethlehem, PA, it's time for another dog-eared hour of chemical-free horticultural hijinks you get your garden. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. Tired of reading bad news about MAGA hats? Maybe you need to settle down with a good book. I've interviewed many authors over the years, but on today's show, I'll reveal the three books that have really stayed with me. You'll never look at roses, figs, or pawpaws the same way again. With special appearances by George Washington, Adam and Eve, the Empress Josephine, the Buddha, and Alexander the Great. Otherwise, it's a fabulous phone call show, cats and kittens. That's right, potential guests are busy becoming bibliophiles. So we will take that even helping. If you're telecommunicated questions, comments, tips, tricks, suggestions, and elucidatingly erudite enunciations. So keep your eyes and or ears right here, because it's all coming up faster than you can turn the pages right after this. Welcome to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from PBS 39 in the beautiful Christmas city of Bethlehem, PA. I'm beautiful Mike McGrath. Coming up later in the show, we are going to have our own little book club. I'm going to talk about three of the most impressive books that have come my way over the years of hosting this show. We interviewed the authors, and I've always kept these books handy for rereading. In the meantime, however, lots of your fabulous phone calls will be read at 833-727-9588. Joseph, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi. Hello, Joe. How are you doing? Pretty well at the moment. And where is Joe doing pretty well? Well, I am uh, actually have an address here in Belfont, PA, but I'm actually located midway between Belfont and State College. Oh, okay, right. You're up in the in this uh, in the state college area by Penn State. That's right. Oh, and do you pronounce it Belfont? Because I thought it was like Belafonte or Belfonte. Yeah, people get that wrong all the time. I spoke at um, at the college at Penn State uh, about a year ago, and on my way out of town, I stopped in your little town or or in Belfont and had a marvelous lunch at a place called Blondie's. Um, and what an interesting little town, a lot of history there. I mean, I thought I was back in San Francisco or something with those steep streets. Uh, it's, it's a cool little place. It's worth the trip off the highway to go take a look at it. Yeah, they try to maintain the convention of being um, uh, sort of Baroque. Well, I, 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 I could go Baroque there. What can we do for you? What can we do for you, Joe? I have several questions for you, Mike. Uh, two of them involve uh, my asparagus garden. Okay. And the first portion of it is uh, I have some asparagus packaged plants that I bought, and they were dry, of course. Mm -hmm. And I never planted them last year. And I was wondering if I tried to plant them this year, will they grow and be viable? Well, you got no choice, right? So well, I could pull them out. You could what? <laughs> I could discard them. <laughs> oh no, no! You always want to. Um, you always want to uh, play your aces. See if you got something there. So one of the ways that you can uh, get some insurance here, and you, you have relatively large what are called crowns that you're going to plant underground, right? Right. So. Get a bucket of nice, clean water, not city water, but rainwater or, you know, something that's been run through a filter and soak each one of those crowns up, up probably for 12 to 24 hours. And that'll, uh -huh. that'll rehydrate it. And then you're going to plant, you're making a new patch? No, I'm incorporating them into a, an existing patch. Are you sure you can do that without harming the existing crowns? Oh, yes. Yeah, because I have space in there. Okay, good. Yeah, uh, hydrating beforehand will increase your odds dramatically. You'll even see the plant kind of come alive. Okay, excellent news. All right, what else? Okay, same patch of uh, asparagus. I have voles that come in, especially during the winter, and they're underground or making their, their uh, channels, right. and they eat my asparagus roots. Yeah, I bet they and, would. What I do you, don't know how to get rid of them. What and do you, I also have, have grass seed that 
and weeds that keep growing up in between my asparagus. Weeds are the biggest problem in uh, asparagus patches. Uh, do you mulch your patch over winter? You know, I have in the past, and I have cut them down, and uh, so there's some of the expired weeds and um, old plants that are on top now, uh, acting sort of as a mulch. But I've heard not to mulch because uh, it tends to invite the voles in. And it, I'm right near pasture. It can. With it can. That, that can be true. So the first thing you want to do is you want to go to an independent garden center, a real nice family-run nursery, something like that, or go online, and you want to buy mole and vole repellent whose active ingredient is castor oil. Um, uh. They come in both liquid and pelletized form. You want the one with the highest concentration of active ingredient. And you want to start spreading that stuff over your patch right now. Um, what it does, it is it, as rain takes it down into the subsoil, it imparts a really nasty smell down there. So it doesn't directly harm the voles, um, but if they can live elsewhere, a lot of times they will. You can also try to thin out the herd early in the season before they start breeding with regular old mouse traps. You got two options here. You can get like a shoebox and cut a little Mickey Mouse hole in the side. They will run into that, and then you would just have a couple of spring uh, spring-loaded traps in there baited with peanut butter. Or, uh, and you have to have them in a box because otherwise birds could get caught. You don't want that to happen. Oh, right. The other option would be to buy one of these battery-powered electric chair uh, mouse traps. There's a little hole for the mouse to go in. You put some peanut butter in the back. Um, it has batteries inside and they uh, step on an electrified plate and then they pay for their crimes. Uh, those two... Oh, yeah. Those two things together should really uh, take care of a lot of business, as would a barn cat. You know, having, having a, a cat roam around out there. I know that's controversial because they will catch a couple of birds, but um, they're very good at catching voles. And then finally, maybe this will also appeal to you because you're, you're kind of out in the country. You yes, can, I am. You can set up a raptor perch. Um, you know, get a big uh, piece of lumber and then put a cross beam on top of it about five or six feet off the ground. Uh, make it as long as you possibly can. You probably won't see raptors on it during the day, but believe me, owls will come and perch on it at night. And owls are the number one predator of voles. Voles are active in the evening. Um, they are a delicacy to the owls. They can't hear the owls coming. And you'll see the results immediately. You'll see a lot of owl pellets um, underneath that crossbeam. In, in the kind of area you're in, it would work tremendously. Well, you know, I do have something similar to that, that crossbeam. It used to be a kind of a, um, I guess, used for a clothesline at one time. And uh, that's near, right into a uh, horticultural area that I have as well. And these voles also go after my, um, uh, some of my plants that are in that, those gardens. Yeah. But, get, um, get, on top, the, get on top of this early and often. Put up a couple more perches. Get that castor oil down. Get those traps out. Um, because voles have, uh, or, you know, I'm not sure how to put this, um, they reproduce more rapidly and frequently than almost any other mammal in North America. I think the females are capable of having pups at like six weeks of age. They tend to have a six to eight in a litter. So, you know, you want to take care of it early in the season before you got a million voles. Yeah, I have put down pellets into their runs also. You know, the vole pellets, so... Uh, no, that's not, that that's not the way it works. Um, you you want to spread it evenly across the surface of the soil. And I hope you're talking about castor oil and not poison. No, it is castor oil. And the other thing, they're also getting into my vegetable garden. You know, they come in, I even put uh, subsoil uh, deterrent uh, fencing in there, very tiny 
you know, like hardware wire and all right, that. Hardware cloth. To, right, and they still get past it. Well, you know, just keep just keep the fight. If you've got hardware cloth and it's buried like six inches deep and it goes up like a foot above ground, I can't see how they would get in. They're not good climbers. Yep, I do that also for rabbits, so. Yeah, well, rabbits are easily kept out of a garden with any kind of fence. Okay, good. <laughs> All right, we got to go, Joe. Bye-bye. Bye. Laura, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, thanks. Well, thank you, Laura. How you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I am just ducky. Thanks for asking. Where is Laura doing well? I live in a place called the Quad Cities. I'm on the Illinois side. The other two cities are on the Iowa side. Oh, okay. Okay, so you're you're uh, near Iowa. You're nowhere near where I was in Mount Vernon, Illinois, recently. No. Mm-mm. Oh, it's a sin. We put on some great shows out there. You would have oh. loved it. Yeah, there's a Midwestern herb group, and they have me come out every couple of years for their annual conference, and we have a ball. So, you oh, know. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, maybe you'll travel. All right, what can we do for Laura? Um, in the quad cities, it's, it sounds like an exercise, right? You know, you, you walk, you, right. you walk up and down this steep block and you'll build your quads. <laughs> right. Well, um, I planted several native plant, um, bare root shrubs in the fall. Right. And then, um, as you know, we experienced a polar vortex in the U S and, uh, it was a record negative 33 degree temperature. No Fahrenheit. Uh, yeah. Ooh. And that was, was just bad. the temperature. That didn't count the wind. Yeah, right. Ooh. The windshield was probably like negative 100. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The so, surface of I, Mars. Right. I just wondered, are my new little babies doomed? When you say the fall, when did you install these new plants? Um, this was probably around late October during November. Okay, so we're almost uh, kissing winter, really. Yeah. And uh, you installed them yourself, right? Yes. Were they in pots when you bought them? Uh, they were bare root. They came shipped. Oh, they came shipped bare root. Oof. Mm-hmm. Did you hydrate them before you planted them? Um, no, they came in. Some came in like some gel. Oh, um, man. I- See, I wish oh, you no. would. I wish you had called me when the plants came in, because any bare root plant, you're going to greatly improve the chances of survival if you take the plant and just let it sit in a bucket of clean, lukewarm water for 24 hours before you plant it. Because as you saw, the bare root plants they look they look dead, right? They look dehydrated, mm, yeah. and they are dehydrated. So that. That would have been a big plus for their survival. Uh, plants that are well watered can survive much lower temperatures than plants that are already on the threshold of being uh, dried out. Okay, so you okay. planted them in the ground yourself. Did you improve the soil in the hole? Um, I just used some potting soil. Okay, don't do that again. Um, if if these plants thrive and you replace, uh, fail to thrive and you replace them, don't put anything nice in the hole. You want the roots of the plants to be able to reach out into your regular soil. So put uh, when you put a plant in the ground, fill up the hole with the same soil you removed, and then put compost on top. Um, that's okay. the best way to improve the soil. Um, is there any mulch of any kind on top? Um, I put leaves on top. You, uh, shredded leaves? Um, from Yeah, from the yard. But they are shredded? Yeah. They're not whole leaves? No. Okay, because whole leaves would mat down and prevent water from getting to the plants. Did you water them immediately after you installed them? I did. I did water them quite a bit. Okay, good. What does that mean? Um, I would just go out and, and soak them, um, not every day, but um, probably a couple times a week. For how long? Um, I don't as long as I could stand there with the hose. <laughs> Some are really far down the the hill, and I had to carry buckets to them. <laughs> okay. The the your biggest uh, issue here is lack of water. Um, I don't know how much it rained or snowed shortly after you installed your plants, but that's going to make yeah. a big difference. Newly installed plants at any time of year need to be 
watered. You need to let a hose drip at the base of each plant for like eight hours a piece. Oh, wow. And then move the hose over to the next plant. If your plants do not survive the winter, it's because they weren't pre-treated, they weren't pre-hydrated, and they weren't uh, watered adequately. Now, since then, you've had a lot of rain, snow, ice, right? Yes. Okay. So all we can do is wait till spring and see if they green up. If not, did you get any kind of a warranty, money-back guarantee? Um, there is on some of them, yeah. Okay. There's nothing you can do now, really. If spring turns out dry, which we all drought it, doubt it will, then do the watering I described at the base of the plants. Um, eight hours, just drip, drip, drip. Um, and if they don't survive, we know why now, right? Uh-huh. It was just you, yeah. you didn't hydrate them and you probably didn't water them enough. So don't feel okay. bad. This is, this is how we learn. I just read a great quote from Julia Child, the fabulous uh, woman who taught us all how to be French chefs. And she said, if you're afraid of failure, don't ever cook a meal because failure is the only way we learn anything. It's the only way we learn how to do things. So wait till spring, be patient, don't feed them anything, don't try to do any tricks with them. And if they, if they survive and thrive, then you've got super healthy plants. And any that uh, don't make it, either cash in your, um, your replacement insurance or, or just buy new ones in the spring. But don't okay. beat yourself up over it. Um, it sounds like you didn't get adequate planting instructions with them. Um, if you had been told to do that, you would have done it, right? Right. Yeah. That, that advice should come with any bare root plant. So it's not your fault. Okay. All right. All right. Thank you. And there's always hope. So good luck. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and announce that I'll deliver a Titanic tomato talk at 11 a.m. at Homestead Gardens in Annapolis on Saturday, April 6th. But don't go looking for all the details at the events section of our website just yet because we'll be right back with three books you will be happy to read and more of your fabulous phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from WLVT, PBS 39 in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to You Bet Your Garden from PBS 39 in the beautiful Christmas city of Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath. We got a really interesting and different question of the week for you this time around, cats and kittens. We're going to go back through the past, our favorite interviews, and talk about three of the most amazing books we ever discussed on this show, getting you ready to put together your summer reading list. But before that, we're taking lots of your fabulous phone calls at 833-727-9588. Mary Ann, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, Mike. How you doing? I am just ducky today, Mary Ann. Thank you for asking. How are you? Okay. Just a little bit upset about my plants. And where are your plants? Uh, I am here in Blakesley, PA. Where's Blakesley? Up in the Poconos, up in the mountains. Oh, where it's okay. Cold and a lot, a lot of deer. Yeah, it is. But it's beautiful country up there. The mountains yes. are beautiful. But they're not the Pocono Mountains. There is no such thing. <laughs> so, um, all right. What can we do for Marianne in the Poconos with her herds of deer? Okay. I purchased uh, an amaryllis kit sure. in November. Mm-hmm. Now, I was told that it would grow. Uh, it's now almost Easter, and I still haven't had or seen anything about any flower or a bud. But my leaves are only are almost 29 inches long. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now, what did I do wrong? You did nothing wrong. Uh, they sold you a bad bulb. Where'd you get your bulb? Uh, I purchased the kit in my local uh, shop right. 
Oh, okay. And according to the box, mm-hmm. it says it's a, a reputable place. Yeah, well, when 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 did you ever pick up something in the shop right that said, by the way, this is from a really disreputable place well, of business? Well, according to it, it's from the Total Green and it's from Holland and uh, quality premium since 1876. Yeah, that's not even a new company. That's not even an old company in Holland. Take go back to the 1600s. They do all the bulbs, whether it's spring bulbs, summer bulbs, or indoor tropicals like this one. Here's the deal. Um, you are owed a refund. You are owed a new bulb. Because when you buy these bulbs in the store, they're supposed to be kind of prearranged to produce their flower right away. So typically you get these kits, you got a little plastic pot, you got a little bit of yeah. seed starting soil, you yeah. got this big bulb that sometimes there's already greenery coming out of it. And you bury the bulb halfway in the pot. You always want to leave that top, top half of the bulb exposed to the air. And you soak, Did that. you soak it real well. And then you're not even supposed to have to put it in any kind of special spot. It should be, again, pre-chilled or pre-arranged to uh, produce a stalk, which would then produce a series of flowers on top. And then you would enjoy the flowers and the secret to getting return of amaryllis is when those flowers fade, you take a pair of scissors, you cut off at the very tip of that single stalk, because that's where a seed head would form and you don't want that to happen. And then the leaves come out. And that's when you grow the flower for the following year. The green leaves that then come out the sides of the pot, they're collecting solar energy. That's when you should feed the plant that's when if the weather's warm outside, you should take it outside and let it soak up real sunshine out there, feed it a couple of times. And then you either wait till those leaves start to turn brown on their own, or you bring the whole thing back inside, say on September 1st, and you just sit it in a cool, dark spot, like in a closet, back in the box. And then after it rests for three months, you bring it back out, and because you supercharged it with food and sunshine, it should begin that new sequence of a flower stalk first, followed by the leaves. Most people who screw these things up after the first flowers appear don't give the leaves enough sunshine or don't give the plant food after the flowers disappear. But if you do that, you can actually uh, get it to bloom every year year after year, if you're really good and you have the right kind of climate, you can get two blooms a year. But wow. it pretty much has to start out with that first. Now, you say you've got big green leaves, right? Yeah, they're like swords. They're so long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They do get big and floppy. So that's a good sign. What Do you, do you have it in bright sunshine? What do you got? Well, I have it on, uh, my, uh, on, uh, on my counter, and it says to turn it every so often, so I turn it, and every day I look inside, I separate the leaves and look no, inside, you're not gonna, uh-uh, nothing no, today. No, it's not going to happen. Here's what's going to No, but, but, no, but you're, you know, you're still in the running here. So what's going to happen, you're going to get a gentle, liquid, organic plant food. You're going to feed it. You're going to give it the brightest light you can until it's safe to put it out. And unfortunately, you, you got to wait till like June 1st up there in the mountains. Yeah, it's cold but up here. then you're going to put it out for June and July. At the end of July, bring it back inside. That should be plenty of time. Make sure the leaves get as much light as you can. Feed it two or three times. And then mm-hmm. literally, no matter what shape the leaves are in, you can either clip them off or you can leave them be but put them in a box, in a closet, with a note on the door to open it up in 90 days. And Aww. 90 days after that, you put it back in the pot with the dirt and half of the uh, bulb above the soil level, water it real well, put it in a sunny window, then you should get the, uh, the flower stalk first. And after that, you can just keep that thing happening uh, year after year. It's kind of like spring bulbs, except these are tropical bulbs that need to be protected from cold. 
and I was so excited because it's not the normal red. It's got it's got red with all tipped in white, and I was so excited. I said, oh, boy, I'm going to get this beautiful plant. Years and years so ago, said, you could only get red amaryllis, but now there's all sorts of pinks and uh, multiple really? colored ones. And unfortunately, this is what happens when you drift away from the easy one. You know, sometimes oh. you have failures like this. A red amaryllis mm -hmm. is bulletproof. But sometimes these oh. fancier ones are a little more uh, persnickety. But I mm. think if you give those leaves sun, feed the plant, and put it away at the end of, of say, August, and bring it out again around Christmas time, I think you'll get a flower. Because once that flower stalk begins to appear, once it comes out of stasis again, that stalk grows really fast. Sounds good to me. Oh, Mike, thank you so much. You're a real sweetheart. Ah. And uh, I want to thank you for your time and your patience also. Oh, my pleasure, Marianne. Good luck with your bulb. Okay, thanks a million again. Thank Have you. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. 833-727-9588. Mindy, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thanks, Mike. Well, thank you, Mindy. How are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you? I am just ducky. Thanks for asking. And where is Mindy Well? I am in Edmond, Oklahoma. Just outside of Oklahoma City. Yes, sir. All right. Some of my uh, some of my favorite gardeners uh, toe the terrible soil <laughs> down where you uh, are. You got, I understand you, about the terrible soil. Yeah, and the wind. You got everything going against you. So when you get a single tomato, you're a winner. What can we do for Mindy in Edmond, Oklahoma? Well, I'm trying to plant a wildflower garden this year. And I was inspired by a movie I watched recently about reclaiming the wild, rewilding. Mm -hmm. And I had a couple baskets just from my local garden center and I was astounded just by these few little baskets how many butterflies and bees just swarmed to us and so I want to do more and so we backed to a creek in the woods mm -hmm. unfortunately the city has come through and done some utility work and cleared about a 40 foot wide path about a hundred yards long of Ooh. trees oh that could so, be that could be really devastating um i know they i love to cut down trees they're doing it a lot in my area because we've had some horrendous power failures that lasted weeks um in the past but when you're near water like that you have to remember that whether it's a tree in the way of something or an invasive plant it's stabilizing the creek side and it's very important uh, for the for the quality of the water and salamanders and toads and fishies and dragonflies that those right, plants I, remain. Yeah. I completely agree. It was devastating. And beyond the view that I had is now lessened. Yeah, <laughs> slightly, right? Yeah. Oh, yes. But it's just, you know, that, that was a habitat. And so... Anyway, I just thought my little part, I've, I've gotten approval actually from our HOA to do some wildflower seeding in the back, at least that, and they're going to hold off from any brush hogging, mowing, any treatments, chemical treatments. So Excellent. that's a plus. Mm -hmm. That's a big plus. Yes. So uh, I just, I don't really know where to start. Okay, so I'm going to, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to yeah, tell great. you. So you bought baskets of wildflowers, live flowers, with their uh, feet in the soil last year. Yes. And you just put the baskets out as opposed to them being in pots, right? Right. Okay. Now, you can go back. Uh, you got them at a garden center, right? Yes. You can go back to that garden center. One of the most important things when you're doing a wildflower mix or starting a wildflower meadow is you start with plants that are either native and or very appropriate for your location. As you know, the growing conditions, no joke, in Oklahoma are very distinctive. You have a, a, a lot of devastating sun, you got a lot of high winds, you have dry periods, you've got soaking periods, your soil is terrible. Um, 
but there are always plants that are going to love those conditions. So you don't want to buy off of a website, a national thing. You don't want to get like even something dedicated to your part of the country. You want to be really specific to the Oklahoma City area. Your local garden center where you got these plants, they may be hip to that. They may have a wildflower blend that they have created especially for your area. But I think I mentioned this on the show a couple of weeks ago, and I'll never stop mentioning it when we get a call from um, your region. You have one of the best botanic gardens going in Oklahoma City. And I would be surprised if they didn't have their own wildflower blend that you could either, you know, go into the city, spend a day at the, uh, at the Arboretum there. I mean, it's beautiful. Uh, the Botanic Garden in the middle of Oklahoma. And it is. You know it's in the middle of Oklahoma City. Yes, it's beautiful. It's like, it's like this oasis. And I know that they've been experimenting with prairies and wildflower blends. So they may be able to sell you um, a blend that would work really well in your area or get a list of recommended plants from your local extension office, either the Edmond office or the Oklahoma City office. It would be fine either way. And they'll have the list of plants, and then you could buy the seed independently. And what you would do is you would buy the biggest packages of seed you could and then get like a bucket or a wheelbarrow or um, you know some big container and mix it all together yourself. Make your own okay. mix. And then what you would do if you do this, then you would mix in really high-quality topsoil or some compost, and you would kind of, it's not exactly a seed bomb, but it's the same principle. You'd be putting down the seed with some soil to get it started, and you would want to time this right before relatively gentle rains are predicted. You know, not hurricanes, thunderstorms, tornadoes but get it down with this mix of soil and seed, um, then have natural rains come, and you should get great results. But the closer you stay to the right plants, the less you can do any damage to the environment. And if you go nuts on the seeds, I mean, the more seed, the better here. Um, you will see uh, insects and butterflies and native bees and pollinators like you've never seen before. Great. And you'll be stabilizing that stream bed, which is hugely important. Right. The, so it's not too late to try to do the seeds, because I've read there are some wildflowers that you need to do uh, seeding in the fall. Not need to do, but it's better if you do it in the fall. There's also tricks you can do with nicking those seeds or giving them the cold treatment or stuff like that. But don't worry about that. We're, we're throwing a whole bunch of stuff at the wall, and a lot of it is going to stick. And then in the fall, I do want you to overseed with exactly the same kind of blend. As the weather gets cool, do the same thing. Mix up the seed and soil and throw it over top of what you got out there. Okay, so it's a mix of perennials and... Perennials, annuals, whatever, whatever is recommended. Uh, you want different heights. But if you mix together enough seeds and all the seeds are of plants that are appropriate for your area, you'll make your own diversity and it'll be unique to your little wildflower field. Great. Well, I'm excited to get started on it. All right. Well, good luck. If you get great results, send us a picture. Great. I will. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you for taking care of that waterway. It's really important. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey there, cats and kittens, it's Mike McGrath here, 
asking for a favor from you. I know it's bleak outside, and the last thing some of you are thinking about is your summertime gardens, but now is the time to think about them and talk about them. So give us a call, 833-727-9588, and we'll get you set up for a successful summer. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and announce that I will appear at the Loving Our Earth Expo at St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Exton, PA on Saturday, May 4th, and then hop down to the Town Center Garden event in Reston, Virginia for two shows on Sunday, May 5th. But don't go looking for all the details at the event section of our website just yet, because we'll be right back with three great books and more of your fabulous phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from WLVT, PBS 39 in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural, organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to You Bet Your Garden from PBS 39 in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Mike McGrath, and we're in the stretch now, cats and kittens. In just a couple of minutes, we'll get to the question of the week, which is an actual question asked by a listener, and the answer is three of my favorite books. You'll see what we're talking about after a couple more of your fabulous phone calls at 833-727-9588. Caitlin, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thanks, Mike. I am in New London, Connecticut, um, but I grew up in Coopersburg, Pennsylvania. Okay, very good. A local girl who ran away from home. <laughs> exactly. Connecticut's beautiful. I was just there a couple of weeks ago um, in Hartford, and um, I had a great time. Great gardeners there. My fiance and I actually just bought our first home up here in New London, and we are looking to install some raised beds, mm -hmm. as you always talk about. Good. Um, but as you know, we have a lot of stone up here, and we love the look of the stone walls that you find all around New England. Yep. And we're wondering if ra building raised beds out of, you know, the local natural stone here is a good idea or not. It's a fabulous idea. It's an really? absolutely fabulous idea. Now you don't have to worry about pressure-treated wood. You don't have to worry about rot-resistant woods like cedar and locust when they're going to last till. Um, I, from using real pavers that are used to make hardscaping, you know, exhibitions at people's houses and backyards, to using local stone, it is one of the best looks. You don't have to worry about it breaking down. And in your climate, which is a little cool up there, there's a tremendous advantage to framing your raised beds with stone as opposed to any other material. And that is that the stone, as you probably know, warms up during the heat of the day. And then the stone retains that heat. And it sends that heat out into the air, but it also sends it sideways into the soil where the roots of your plants are. And it keeps those roots warmer later in the evening and gives you, you can gain an extra week or two of growing time, literally, um, by having this passive heating system out there collecting solar energy for you during the day and feeding it back to the root system of your plants at night. And as you say, there's a tremendous tradition of building with stone. So are you going to try to find somebody uh, like a local mason who's good with working at field stone and make these real presentation pieces? I mean, we're hoping to build them our, ourselves. Um, you know, without any mortar or anything, just kind of stack the stones. Mm -hmm. um, but there are certainly lots of local purveyors of this uh, stone. I mean, it's everywhere. Yeah, well, and you're correct. I mean, you, you know, with a new house, you're going to have tons to do inside. 
and there's all sorts of, you know, wonderful surprises that are going to appear in the electrical system and the plumbing. And, oh, my God, that was a bearing wall that they cut that window out of, you know. <laughs> So, yeah, you'll be you'll you'll be busy and that'll be a drain on your finances. So, sure, do the first ones yourselves. Um, I would urge you, even though you sound young, to make them as high as you can. You know, the building mm -hmm. material here is essentially free. You're doing what I did. Right. You expand. You, you cleared an area and you got more stone than you got soil. Right. 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 So don't be afraid to build those beds two feet high. It'll be easier for you to work them. And then again, think of it as, you know, electrical generator. I mean, the more stone there is, the more heat it'll absorb during the day and the more it'll keep your plants warm at night. J.I. Rodale actually did this very deliberately in the early 1940s, and he called it rock mulching. Um, hmm. because he's in the same situation as you and I. When he cleared the land for his uh, experimental farm, he had a lot of field stone. And, you know, it, you either haul it out and bring other stuff in, or you use it on site. And by using it on site, he noticed right away that the plants that were framed in stone um, were doing much better, especially early in the season and late in the season, than the plants that were framed in wood or other uh, substances. So you're, you're right on target, and it's, you should always close the circle on your own landscape whenever you can. Now, when right. was your house built? Uh, it was built in 1915, I believe. Okay. So, so we're gonna have plenty of those electrical issues you're yes, uh, yeah, Oh, yes, yes. But what I'm getting at is there's lead paint in your soil. Um, right. I don't even advise getting it tested. You know it's there. So right. what you do when you're out working in your soil, make sure you wear good gloves. I like baseball yeah. batting gloves. I should have them in the studio today to show them off. But they're, they fit really tight. You can feel what you're doing, and they're very protective for your hands. And when you're working in your own old soil in the beginning, wear a dust mask, just a, just a simple one, because you don't hmm. want to inhale the lead in your soil, and you don't want to absorb it through your fingertips. You know, don't get nuts about it, but then, because um, you're going to fill these raised beds with fresh soil. You're going to buy compost and topsoil. So, exactly. Yeah, you, any contamination in your soil is going to be down, you know, a foot or two. So don't worry about it, but use caution when you're doing that part of it. And then once you fill them up, you're sealing off that lead-contaminated soil. Everything should be fine. Well, excellent. Now, do you think the stone beds are more susceptible to, to weed pressure than the wood? It depends on how good you are at locking the stones together, so to speak. Um, there are some stone-made beds in my garden area that were the first ones I ever made. And they're kind of loopy. And yeah, grassy weeds have found ways to grow up in between the cracks and the stones. But the ones that I did later, after I had kind of gotten the philosophy of, of flat stones on top of flat stones and trying to keep everything in a nice line, no, there's no problem with weeds. And if down the line you want to mortar these stones together, you know, straighten them out a little bit, mortar them together, then boom, it's the same as having pavers or landscape timbers, except for the fact that it's safer and more functional for your plants in a chilly environment. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for taking my call. All right. As promised, it's time for a very different question of the week, which we're calling Roses, Figs, and Pawpaws. Three books to grow on. Enike in Lake Leelanau, Michigan writes, do you have a list of books that you like or a list of books by authors you've had on the show? I am interested in diversity. I like hearing what other gardeners are doing. I have raised beds and of course I use organic methods. After all, I live on a lake. I've been listening for a long time and still enjoy and learn from your program. Keep up the good work for your cats and kittens. Well, I'm always reluctant to recommend how-to books about gardening because no matter how close to perfect I judge the information to be, there's always something I disagree with. And even I have enough civility not to say, this is a great book except for pages 73, 94, and 131. Heck, 
I even read things in some of my books that I'd change if I were writing or rewriting that book again today. But there are several authors I've interviewed on the show whose books have really stayed with me. So much so that I recently dug through the hoarder's dream that is my office to find and reread them again. There is some instruction here, but mostly there's inspiration, enthusiasm, wonder, and really great writing. Book number one, Chasing the Rose, An Adventure in the Venetian Countryside by Andrea de Robelin, a Borzai book published by Alfred Knopf, 2014. Somehow this book manages to be a page-turner that still moves at the pace of a summer in Venice. De Robelant, whose speaking voice is as exquisite as his writing, begins with a journey to a small farming community that was literally built by his great, 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 great grandfather. But by page seven, he's already been invited by a curious caretaker to walk through a hidden garden that contains a riot of plants including a silvery pink, seemingly wild rose that smells of peaches and raspberries. From there, it's on to a library where he finds old papers left behind by his great-great-great-great-grandmother, who was friends with the Empress Josephine, like, like whose great-great-great-great-grandmother wasn't, right? Then it's a wild ride to the earliest days of the importation of new roses from China. The DuPont family shows up, don't they always? And boom, we're in the middle of both the French and Rose revolutions. But you know it's all going to lead back to that silvery pink, seemingly wild rose that smells of peaches and raspberries, and to grandparents four times great. Book number two, Gods, Wasps, and Stranglers, The Secret History and Redemptive Future of Fig Trees by Mike Shanahan, Chelsea Green Publishing, 2016. Figs are, we soon learn, intertwined with all of life. They rely on perhaps the strangest wasp on the planet for pollination, and that wasp relies on the fig for its continued existence. Figs provide food for birds and animals that in return spread their figgy domain far and wide. Those beasts include giant tortoises, jackals, bearded pigs, and speckled bears. This book is both a thriller as the author begins, ecological changes have driven that all-important species of wasp to extinction in an important fig-producing region and a real mind-blower. The Buddha is said to have gained enlightenment after meditating under a fig tree. And then up pops Alexander the Great, whose troops take shelter under what they think to be a canopy of trees, except that it's a single banyan, or strangler fig. Alexander's admiral said it could have sheltered 10,000 men. Later on, a bigger one really does shelter 20,000. We learn that D.H. Lawrence wrote passionately about figs, that the fruits were the basis of hallucinogenic rituals, that a cutting from the Buddha tree traveled thousands of miles as a priceless gift housed in, quote, a vase of solid gold eight fingers thick, and that the tree of forbidden knowledge in Genesis was probably a fig. And we're barely on page 50. The third book in today's list is Paw Paw, In Search of America's Forgotten Fruit by Andrew Moore, also Chelsea Green Publishing in 2015. It is said, Moore begins this book with a quote from an old gardening magazine, that no habit gets a stronger hold on a man than the paw paw habit. I can tell you from my travels around the country that this is hardly an exaggeration. It's one of only two Native American fruit trees. The other is the puckery persimmon. Its leaves are among the biggest of any plant in the forest, but the trees themselves top out at a petite 10 feet. It is the only member of the custard family, yes, there is such a horticultural designation, that grows outside of the tropics. Its flowers smell like rotting flesh, and so are pollinated by flies. And everybody who tastes a ripe pawpaw describes the flavor differently. While searching for wild plants in the Ohio River Valley, Moore soon discovers that you smell them before you see them, a fragrance he describes as a sweet tropical aroma. And of course, they grow abundantly in the wild, 
but frustrate the heck out of home gardeners. And since we're dropping names today, let's add Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, and John Bartram, who traded pawpaw seeds and stories, John J. Audubon, who drew them, the Lewis and Clark Expedition, who were saved from starvation by them. You get the idea. Well, that sure was a different kind of question of the week, now wasn't it? Please let us know what you think of this topic, because I got bags of books back home. Oh, and a special treat. I wound up finding out that I had a bunch of doubles of great gardening books. So for this show only, and any other time we do a little book review at the end, I am going to give away a book. This week it's going to be the book on urban forest, which is a great read for anybody who lives in the city and likes city trees. And all you gotta do to get in line for a copy of that book is send me a postcard. And I mean postcard, not an email, not a letter, not a telegram. Go down to the post office or go to the corner store where it says greetings from Sheltonham, PA or something like that. And just put your name and address and phone number on the back, on the front, address it to You Bet Your Garden, care of PBS 39, Bethlehem, PA. It'll get to us, trust me. And when we get a bunch of postcards in, I'll go through them, I'll pick one, and I'll let you know who gets that book. And every time we do book reviews, I will give away a splendid book. I got lots of doubles, too. Anyway, luckily for yous, the question of the week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website. To read it over in detail, just click the link for the question of the week at our website, which is and forever will be youbetyourgarden.org. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden Question of the Week, and you'll always find the latest Question of the Week at the Gardens Alive website. Yikes. My producer is threatening to ban my books in Boston. Ask your grandparents what that one means, kids. If I don't get out of this studio, we must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 1-833-PBSWLVT or 833-727-9588. Or send us your email, your tired, your poor, your wretched refuse teeming towards our garden shore at ybyg at wlvt.org. Make sure to include your location when you email. And don't worry if you didn't get any of that down. All this new contact information is at our website, youbetyourgarden.org, where you'll also find the answers to all your garden questions, audio of this show, video of this show, see me move my hands, and our podcast. Ken Queter plays our theme song. Our chief content officer is Yoni Greenbaum. Our engineer is cheerful Charlie Sarah. Our social media director is Amanda McGrath. Check out her fine work at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page. Well-read Tavia Minnick works the phones. Our website wonder is Anastasia Weckerly. Our video editors are Concrete Kelly Hurd and Jelly Roll Jake Boyer. Our floor manager, John DeSantis, well, he reads comic books. Harassed and harried, Javier Diaz is our director, maybe our producer, and is more than likely literate. Our marketing madman is Jaunty Jim McDonald. Our chief technological officer is Andy Cummins. Watch as sparks literally fly from her head as she confronts the latest update in our systems. Zach the Tack Wisniewski is in the house, and he's wearing rubber boots. Our CEO, Tim Fallon, is not our executive producer and would also be wearing rubber boots, except that he's late for a meeting, his key card no longer works, his email is on the fritz, and he lost his phone. I'm your host, well-read, Mike McGrath. Okay, I read at least the first 100 pages of all those books, but I'm packing all three up for summer reading at Chautauqua, where one of your suitcases has to be filled with nothing but books, and Ocean Grove, where you can read just about anything, just not on a Sunday. Are we done yet? Because i got to be home before I can get back to see you again next week.